The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. Special thanks to our title sponsor this season, IGS. Founded in 2013, IGS develops industry 4.0 solutions in the global ag tech and commercial lighting markets. As an industry innovator, they make revolutionary controlled environment growth products. For more information, visit intelligentgrowthsolutions.com. There were plenty of early stage vertical farming companies that went out of business. They were just, I wouldn't say ahead of the curve, but they were certainly at the point of the curve where it's so risky. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Welcome back. Episode 3, Vertical Farming Podcast. If you are new to the show, a brand new series kicked off in grand fashion with great interviews with the likes of David Farquhar of IGS, Intelligent Growth Solutions, and Louisa Burwood-Taylor of AgFunder News. This episode is special as it's one of the first interviews I had as I was learning and educating myself more about the vertical farming industry. Today's guest, Stephen Pankhurst, provided a really interesting overview of the vertical farming industry via a YouTube series on his Exacognition channel. As I was learning more about the potentials for this industry, the challenges, all the different ways to look at the information and decide just how big this was going to be, this was really invaluable for me. And I was able to track Stephen down and we had a really great discussion. And I feel like it provided a lot of context for the interviews that were to follow. We go in depth on all the technology, the barriers of entry, the profitability, and the evolution of the vertical farming industry. Steven shares his origin story and how he became originally interested in vertical farming. And he talks about the time and the energy that went into his YouTube channel dedicated entirely to vertical farming. He outlines how much time and energy went into the series on vertical farming on his YouTube channel. Through his research, we break down the progress of technological advances in the industry and the profitability of vertical farms. And Stephen speaks to the challenges, barriers to entry, and also the importance of light energy, which is something that's a consistent theme in some of the future conversations as well. Enjoy my conversation with Stephen Pankhurst. So Stephen Pankhurst, thank you for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you. Uh, glad for having me. 
So uh, we were chatting a little bit in the green room, so to speak, about how uh, I got started. So I want to dig into that on your end as well. But as I was doing a lot of preliminary research for getting this show off the ground, naturally, as with all things YouTube, I ended up down several rabbit holes and I found the Exacognition site and I found your fantastic three-part series on vertical farming, which I've now watched a couple of times. And I thought it was an amazing introduction into what's happening in the industry. I was fascinated by the, the level of, of research you've done. I even geeked out on your uh, Google Sheet spreadsheet <laughs> a little bit. So I'm wondering if we could start with your interest in vertical farming, and then we'll dig into, a little bit into your background. But can you tell me like where this started and, and where you, for some reason, you were drawn to create a specific series on vertical farming? So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the origins of that. Yeah, sure. And it's actually quite interesting because it's it's surprisingly similar to your introduction really i mean i've always been interested in technology business those sort of things and i I got into listening to audiobooks on the way to work and i came across the book abundance and bold also by peter diamandis back in about 2015 and when i came across it that was when it first you know i was first exposed to the idea and the potential power of it after that, I found Despomia's book because I wanted to find out more about the topic. And I listened through that and I thought, great, this is a technology that, that seems like it might have the potential to really impact the world in a positive way. And I'm generally interested in all sorts of technologies. And that one sort of was sat quite high on the list, but I actually forgot about it for, say, about two years. I was carried on looking at more technologies and, you know, I'd read the occasional article and back in about, I think 2017 sometime, I thought, let's check up on how vertical farming's getting on. You know, there were some, you know, promises, predictions, what have you. I want to see where this industry's got to. And when I looked into it, I thought, wow, you know, some of the things that people said were going to happen have happened. And I came across some articles that that were saying, this is a fantasy, this isn't going to work. And I was kind of confused. I was, I was seeing lots of articles saying, you know, this is great, this is the future of agriculture. Some saying, this is never going to work. And I thought, I've got to get to the, the bottom of this. I, you know, I've got to understand this. Why is it Why is it so, so hard to understand? Because I know the information's all there. It's just not necessarily in a format that's easy to appreciate. And that's when the idea of, making a a YouTube series about it really came about. So I had a previous YouTube channel, which didn't work out. I scrapped the idea and I'd been looking to make an edutainment channel about future technology because I would say it's the thing I would do in my spare time to relax is to, to read about technology. So I thought, well, why don't I use that knowledge and actually put it towards something? So I'd identified vertical farming was a complicated one with a lot of potential and I thought why don't I put my research into this series so that other people can essentially follow my journey as I discover it. Now the video series itself it doesn't follow as if I'm discovering it but I do try and take the viewer through the journey that I went through as I sort of discovered the viability and one of the strange things about it is I went into it without trying to prove it's going to work or disprove it's going to work. 
I just wanted to see. And I, I was probably a few months into the research and I still hadn't decided what the viability was, you know, in terms of the future, the, you know, the far future. It's very clear that it does work and it's working right now. And there's, there's a lot of companies having success with it. And the question I wanted to answer was, can it really scale to the global level? And it took a long time for me to really get my head around what are the things you really need to understand to be able to actually model and predict the future going forward for that technology. I'm curious how you thought about it and maybe if you could speak a little bit about what your background was because to take something on like this, I get the sense that um, you have a bit of a maybe project management or production background because I imagine you were thinking about all the different pieces and you put some thought into the different chapters or, or the three-part the three part series, like how you were going to organize it because you talked about the future, uh, you know, will it work at the future of it? Does agriculture need to change? So I'm wondering what you had done previously up until that point, which was sort of preparing you to, to kind of put content like this together. Right. So I was, you, you were quite close, really. I'm a mechanical engineer by degree. I went into manufacturing, production, process engineering. So really looking at either manufacturing or business processes and really sort of trying to find the issues and streamline them. So it's a lot of digging into the details, coming up with ideas, testing them, that, that sort of thing. And I guess that approach came across in the video series. So you're right in the sense that when I did my research, I started with some quite basic questions, you know, what is it? And, you know, what are all the parts of it? That mindset of optimization becomes a, a key theme in the series, something like I would do with a, with a process. So I'd done my research, I'd got to the point where I said, take the, the rice, so the, the future vertical farm, one of the big challenges is how do you grow our staple crops, our wheat, rice, what have you. And I'd got some books and research papers and they, they sort of came to a conclusion that, you know, if you wanted to grow rice in a vertical farm, it's going to take, you know, 50 times the energy that it takes to grow lettuce. And when I first saw that, I thought, wow, that's a crazy crazy amount of energy and I guess that this industry is going to stick to vegetables I don't really see how we're going to overcome that but that's never a satisfactory answer for me I thought what if we did a bit of a bit of tweaking here and there and you know really really looked into all the parameters to see what opportunities there might be uh, you know I broke it down into the components some of that is your input energy what's your cost of energy going into it how can you make that cheaper what's your light efficiency you know the photons going in can we you know streamline that process and then you start looking into the the plant biology which i have no background in you know realistically speaking and it was a case of digging through papers to see what parameters affect plants growth you know all sorts of things light period co2 levels all that sort of stuff and i just for me i just had to know it at, at that point it was just the case i have to know the answer to this and i have to see if it's at least somewhat possible and as I sort of d dug through it, I, I realized, you know what, it's going to be really difficult, but this this could actually be possible. And as I say, I wasn't really trying to prove that, but I had to I had to try and understand if, if it could be possible. I get the sense that that's part of your personality. Like you said, I have to know the answer to this. Is that a common thread for you when you when you find something that you're naturally curious about that you if it's something that interests you, you 
that you have that impulse that you want to dig deeper? Yeah, that is um, absolutely true. I, I guess you could say I get obsessive about certain topics and I kind of go all in on them. It's a lot more research than I was in initially planning to do. But, but as, as you said, I, I, I had to know and I just went down the rabbit hole. And if you do that, in my experience, you tend to get results you couldn't initially expect. You know, you can really be surprised if you really dig into any area. I mean, not just research, any task you put your mind to. If you really go in for it, you, you can get all sorts of great results. Can you talk a little bit about how much time went into all of this? Because that's, that's one of the first things that I thought about when I saw it, uh, both from a, maybe and talk about it the different phases, but from the research and, you know, you, you mentioned some of the books you read and based on obviously what's in the series, there's a lot of charts <laughs> and a lot of data. So can you talk a little bit about how much time went into the uh, the research and then uh, how much time went into the actual video production of it as well? Yeah. So I had the, I started it in, I would say, October 2017. That's when I was going to start the channel. And I said to myself, right, I'll make this video in four weeks which turned out to be a ridiculous prediction. You know, I'd already made YouTube videos, so I sort of thought, oh, it's all right. You know, I roughly know what goes on. But, you know, four weeks in, and I felt like I hadn't, didn't have a satisfactory answer to most of the questions I wanted to, to answer. So that research phase, you know, it was supposed to be about two weeks. It ended up taking about six months, wow. which... <laughs> is not sustainable. Now, to be clear, it could have been done in less time if I'd taken a less circuitous route. And, you know, whenever I had an interesting question, I went and investigated it, even if it was only, you know, vaguely related to uh, vertical farming. So the, the stuff on, you know, the solar, when I wanted to get to the bottom of, you know, energy costs, I had to really dig into solar and how it worked. And I was looking at all sorts of, you know, you know, you can get sort of calculators and it's all like, you know, what's the local solar radiance? What's the losses in the system? I probably went, you know, way too far, but I must have spent about six months on the research phase. But within the first sort of few weeks, the one thing I'd done, which I think set me up really well, was I'd asked the right questions, or at least what I believed were the right questions, the interesting, interesting ones. So, you know, once you get to, from what is it is like, why do we need this? Why are people saying it's this? Why are people saying it's the other? And I really wanted to understand why there were just seemingly two camps of people at the opposite end of the spectrums. One says, yeah, future, it'll all be solved, don't worry, it'll all work. And on the other hand, people are like, well, no, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. Look, here's the numbers. And I'm an engineer, so I'm drawn to the number, numbers argument. On the other hand, as you know, you're familiar, if you've listened to Peter Diamandis, is we tend to get a very static viewpoint of the world. It's very, this is how it is now. And it's static and it's local. And say you have a lot of experience with greenhouses, you know, your mindset is of, this is, I'm applying the greenhouse mindset to this vertical farm, for example. You're not necessarily looking at other fields and how they could influence it. I'm not saying people don't, but I think there's a tendency, as I say, to, you run the calculations from your perspective and that's that. So it took me, you know, to really try and pit those two ideas against each other uh, to, in the end, that's what it was. I built a, a model, a crude model, you know, I wouldn't publish it in a journal, but it's something that you could reasonably use to check going forward. So 
you said you were looking through the Excel document. Now that's not that's not complete. There's a story behind that. <laughs> but the idea is I have a model that I could look in, say, 2021 and say, oh, you know, solar's improved at this rate and I said it would be this. How does that affect the timeline for rice and all that sort of stuff I think is valuable going forward. So, you know, I'd love to do a follow-up video and say, you know, what's the state in vertical farming in 2021? What's changed? What did it get wrong in the first video? What did it get right? Do we update the conclusions on new data? I think that'd be quite a, an interesting thing to do going forward. Yeah, and it's almost like the information that's available in the Google Sheet is almost, I think of it almost like open source, like if people wanted to use it and, and others contribute to it or leverage it for other deeper analysis. And I think what's what's great is that everything is documented. So you can see what your what assumptions you made. And, and if you think about it, you know, it's almost like Moore's law, like how the processing power increases. I forgot what it was, but the, the amount of information on the chip or the chips get smaller or something like that. Uh, I think that's what's going to happen. There's going to be some exponential growth that you may not even been, been able to predict in terms of how the efficiencies are improving. Because one of the biggest challenges is with vertical farms is this idea of trading energy for for density so i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what what you were finding as as you were looking in into that uh, i think you said lighting accounts for 80 percent of the energy used in vertical farms yeah that's right so uh in terms of progress in technology i was saying before that it, it's been viewed as static i'd seen a particular video that done some calculations there were a few uh, issues with it as it was but you know one of them was like you know solar is 14 percent efficient or, or what have you and having modeled that out, you can get a good idea that actually going forward, the things really do change. And you said 80% lighting, and that was that was the source I, I used. And that was in 2015. So that is now changed because the progress in LEDs has been quite dramatic, really. So it was 80% lighting then. It's less now. I don't have an exact figure. I'd like to see, a, you know, an updated one. But it, it really has changed. And you were saying exponential. The key thing about vertical farming, certainly uh, the plant factory type with the artificial lighting, there's kind of three drivers that really, that are all uh, exponential that add together. So your input of lighting, you know, LEDs are getting exponentially cheaper in terms of cost but also in terms of the efficiencies going up, you know, at a exponential rate. And the ability to understand that certain plants respond differently to certain spectrums of light. So now they're actually creating the light that only emit those specific light frequencies to make them even more efficient, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, that's right. And the other part of that is, you know, I said solar is ex improving exponentially, LED is, and tied to that is the, the yield of the plant. And, and that's really how much edible mass are we getting from a fixed amount of photons of light. And as you say, those LED recipes, they make a, make a huge difference because what you can do with those light recipes is you can sort of set, send signals to the plant to say, oh, you know, don't grow your roots as much. Um, flower earlier, you know, I'm simplifying a bit, but plants respond to sunlight and seasonal changes and they take those cues in changing light levels and essentially the leds you can kind of replicate that but rather than you know be tied to the seasons you can do that whenever whenever you want so that's a that's a huge part of it 
and in fact you don't need to stick to 24 hour growing cycles you know you could make your day say 16 hours and have i don't know say 10 hours of light six hours of dark that kind of thing so you're not even following the 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 normal days then but that's that's really powerful and tied to that is improvements in ai computation sensors getting exponentially cheaper too so what you're seeing is the amount of information you can get from plants you know you can really go a really high resolution of, of feedback the amount of experiments you can run is really high because you can you can control this particular bay and have it with these conditions and this bay's got something else and this bay's something else you feed that information to an ai and it looks at you know uh, leaf growth all all sorts of parameters and it can it can learn from that you know oh this particular type of plant we want to run at this nutrients at this time of its growth growth phase and this light recipe at this growth phase and it can test you know thousands tens of thousands even and there's examples of that already happening which is i think that's a, another input which is potentially going to show exponential growth one of the challenges that you mentioned in, in as you started the series was the obviously the profitability of vertical farms and there's countries that have taken the 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 lead on on this i think at the time of uh, the report you said that japan was leading uh, i think one percent of lettuce production in japan in 2014 was coming from vertical farms i, I don't know how much you, you continue to follow what's happening in the different countries but do you see that? I mean, obviously, that, I would imagine that that'd be a benefit because they're, what they're learning uh, and, and because they've been so far ahead of the curve, you can see what, what's working and what's not. And, and future vertical farms, I imagine, are taking and, and companies are taking advantage of that in, or, or learning from that information. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I use Japan as quite a lot, partly because there's a there's a really good book called The Plant Factory, which is it's I say most of the data is from 2015. But you know, I got a lot of a lot of good information from that book, and you know that's linked to papers that are published by you know Japanese researchers, and essentially they got that start because because of the Fukushima disaster, well not Fukushima but the the earthquake and tsunami uh, that led to that disaster, uh, there was a lot of farmland uh, that was sort of taken out by the tsunami. And Japan was looking at ways to improve its food security. So they actually invested in accelerating their technology. So that's kind of why those companies got an early lead. But as you say, that that technology, there is some proprietary stuff. But, you know, those papers, everyone's got access to that. So as you say, that that's spread out. And now I would say, you know, the UK, the US, in fact, lots of countries they are really quite advanced now and they've got some very very impressive stuff i couldn't believe how many vertical farms have cropped up in the uk i was looking to do a, a, a follow-up video where i'd go and visit a plant factory or a vertical farm and you know i looked in 2017 at the time and i found a few and i looked a few weeks ago and there's loads that is not unique to the uk that's happening all over the place it's a it's a terrible pun, but the uh, 
vertical farming industry really is uh, growing. Yeah, it's interesting because when you look at the, some of the market reports, I think it's they projected it to be a three billion dollar industry by 2024, and I and I'm sure those that just that number just probably just keeps on changing every year as more players enter the space. And there's also been folks that entered early and had a go at it but failed already we're starting to see that as with any nascent startup industry i I think one of the conferences that i saw they actually had a panel uh, and they had several of the folks who had a a vertical farm or a container farm something similar and they went out of business i think podponics was on that panel so i think people are already figuring out what works and what doesn't people were bemoaning the use of scissor lifts in some of these because (laughs) while it sounds and looks cool in terms of efficiency and it's something you, you reference a lot in your series you really have to look at every aspect of the production from how water is used, where it's sourced from, how it's recycled, how energy comes in, how much energy is used in the actual process of the growth, and how labor is used, and, and how all, uh, while the automation sounds nice and sounds cool, I mean, that's an added cost. And then the teaching people how to farm in this new way because you can't come in off of uh, the old way we think of farms and and have a farmer in his overalls show up at a vertical farm and immediately take to it like uh, like you would know what to do it's it's almost like it's a, you have to learn a, a, a different skill set so i think people are, are learning making mistakes and, and and some people are learning from those mistakes but others may unfortunately go out of business so i think um what you continue to stress is probably lends itself to, to the way you, you look at a problem or a challenge like this is you have to measure each piece of the chain and optimize each part of it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a key thing. You're, you're right. A lot There were plenty of uh, early stage vertical farming companies that went out of business. And that, as you said, they were just, I wouldn't say ahead of the curve, but they were certainly at the point of the curve where it's so risky. They had to invest so much in R&D. They had lighting that wasn't efficient enough and you know it becomes very hard to sell at such a premium you know the early vertical farms had really high premiums Uh, some still do have a decent premium largely for profit but that learning it happens you know when you find out that you know vertical farm a failed for this this and this reason you you know you go and ask them why and say what do you think happened and as you say say well you know this cherry picker this was a terrible idea this you know it's harvesting was a nightmare you know all those sort of things all those mistakes they they inform the future uh, approach and some of it is is sort of organic and evolutionary as you know some stuff tries some stuff fails the stuff that works gets carried forward and some of them as you say is 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 a very specific investigation into the minute details of what really matters and what doesn't and how we how you can improve them and you know there's a lot of bright people in the industry now and with sufficient money and sufficient uh, incentive those problems get solved quite quickly you said three three billion it wouldn't surprise me if it's going to actually grow uh, a little bit ahead of that as you were putting this information together and you mentioned how you were inspired by some of those books of the book by abundance and and by dixon despommier's book was there anything that you were surprised by even after having done that initial research as you were then digging in and starting to do your own research and, and putting together some of these tables and charts and, and fantastic visuals that are in the series? Like what what was some of the things that, or, or maybe one thing that, that actually even you were surprised by as you were digging further in? Yeah, I mean, the, there were all sorts. 
of things at the time. Some of them were hard to remember. A lot of things that, that really surprised me when I was doing the research is just how absolutely massive agriculture is. I mean, it is truly vast. You know, of our habitable land, you know, 50% of it's agriculture. And when you really think about it, you know, the vast majority, certainly from a land perspective, it, that's happened in the last 100 years or so. And, you know, that's, that's a massive change. And it, it really, when I was going through the numbers, I had to, you know, really take a step back and say, is this right? You know, when you're looking at billions of kilograms of this and, you know, trillions of litres of water, you just, you can't wrap your head around those figures. So the scale of agriculture was a big one. And that's, on the one hand, you can use that and say, well, it's so big, it's going to take a long time to replace. And I definitely agree with that. I don't think, you know, traditional agriculture is going away quickly. That certainly doesn't seem to be the case. But also to the point on agriculture, you know, that land disappearing so quickly. When we need to do something and there's the incentive to do it, humans can really do a huge amount of things. And food's so important to how we live. So that side of it was was surprising. Uh, I mentioned how surprised I was, how much um, energy it takes to make rice work. And that, that really blew me away when I first looked at, you know, the sheer quantity of energy you would need. That that really surprised me. Well, what's interesting there, and, and you mentioned the, the rice, is you actually broke out the different phases and and how the vertical farming would progress and you talked about it in three phases one would be the leafy greens that we're obviously seeing now but then second would be fruits and and root vegetables and then you do you do talk about the staple crops in phase three was that an, a a breakout that you had seen in your your research or is, that, or is that something as you were putting the data together that you saw made, made sense in terms of categorizing it that way um i never saw the, those phases used directly but when I was looking at what, say, the critics were saying, you know, a lot of them are saying, okay, well, it works for lettuce, but, you know, it's not going to work for wheat, you know, say. And there was also a question mark about vegetables. I just say, it's a big category. It's very, uh, it's very general. But it doesn't make sense to talk about one specific product. But breaking it into those three categories sort of makes sense in terms of there's no specific point and time where vertical farming's viable. It's not, and that's, I think at first I was just trying to answer, is it is it viable or not? But it's, it's much better to understand it in terms of this specific plant in this specific region is going to be vi viable around this time. And if we change the region, that changes the timeline. If we change the plant, it changes the timeline. So I, w I wanted to help the, the viewer to really build the mental model of, Whenever I'm thinking about what could be done, I want to be thinking about what region are we talking about? What sort of plant are we talking about? And that informed the decision. So they're, they're broad categories, but I think they're quite good. You can just think of my staple crops, my vegetables, my leafy greens. And, you know, you've got three levels of difficulty there. Yeah, what was interesting is that on some of the challenges you mentioned how, uh, let's say, if we continue with the rice example, how much energy it would take to make that in a vertical farm. And, and then what you suggested was, let's not make it in a 
region where the energy cost is high. <laughs> let's find the place because, and then, and even something like rice, which stores well, let's find a place where we can put a vertical farm where the energy costs are really low. And then you start to make a case where the numbers are. And what I, what I loved is how your graphs would change <laughs> the animation to make those, which, which made it very interesting. It's, it's very fun to watch because you can say it would, you would, indicate okay if we change this metric then you know the efficiency increases therefore you know the yield increases and and you could see how the numbers were getting closer and closer to what the cost is now and and with every change in either the source of the energy or the efficiencies with the production you could see that you you know we were getting closer and closer to having it be a feasible option yeah you reminded me of of something else that surprised me and it's related to the location you see often when you hear an hearing about vertical farming a lot of the benefits talked about are related to you know the distance traveled or we're saving this you know this transport emissions but when you look into it it's not a huge amount unless you're air freighting perishables that's a big one so it is good that you can locate your product close to the consumer but it's not a it's not a massive factor and that's something i didn't realize when i was investigating it but i had that mindset of right we need this plant factory next to the consumer and that is generally a good idea for perishables but of course staple crops aren't perishables and i initially had the mindset of you know you're gonna have this local rice farm and, and that doesn't make sense in the case of staple crop you could you know you could slow freight it by boat that's not going to be big on emissions you know your, your real emissions challenge for your rice farm is your light energy so put it somewhere the best place for you know, I had a lot of people saying, well, why not nuclear energy? Why not this, that and the other? And they're, they're good comments if you're looking globally. But this was just where's the first place is going to be plausible. And that's, the, you know, that is the place with the high solar radiance, low seasonal variation close to the equator. But it was a it was an interesting process going through that, getting from that 50 times bigger. Because that's that's, you know, you, you're talking over a. A magnitude and a half mm-hmm. of reduction yeah it almost seems insurmountable when you look at when you first look at it but then when you start to to, to just you know break it down into its components it does look like it's attainable yeah it's and it's 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 every element it was like how was the how was the study conducted what were the parameters they used oh i see that they compared it with lettuce but lettuce was using quite an advanced setup and the rice one was just it was well, we just grew some rice indoors being a bit unfair there but you know it's all it's all those kind of things and it is interesting as i was going through and taking you know five percent off here twenty percent off here I, I there was a point where i suddenly thought oh this this is starting to look like this could work and as i say i wasn't trying to prove it would work it could work i i just wanted to be clear that i'd i'd given it a go to try and answer it and I'm glad that sort of came across to the viewer with the with the graphs. I see the graphs came after I'd recorded and scripted all that, and I thought this is going to be a nightmare to show it, uh, but I, it does sort of take them on that journey if you, if you just gradually get through percent to get to such a high order of magnitude is it's a big effort. But when you multiply lots of small percents together, that makes a big difference. If anyone's uh, played video games, those sort of RPGs, it's like well, ten percent. You know, 10% doesn't sound like a lot until you get 10% times 10% times 5% times and suddenly it's mega. So 
that was quite a surprise for me when I sort of got to the point where I said, actually, we're not talking 100 years here, realistically. You know, you're probably talking a decade minimum, and you might be talking two decades maximum, say, but it's it's in a window that's tangible. I, I, I didn't want to come at a conclusion that was quite, quite woolly. Uh, when I was researching, I think I talked about the frustration of not knowing what the real answer was. You know, I'd, I'd read lots of articles and they'd start with, here's all these big problems with agriculture and vertical farming. It's got all these benefits and they all sound nice. And then I came across the negatives and I just couldn't weigh them against each other until it came into this, this, this full system. So, you know, that was... Sorry, I forgot. I forgot where I was originally going with that. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, it, 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 I just I keep having I keep I I get reminded of like Henry Ford because I, I think the quote goes something along the lines of if I had given people what they had been asking for, I, I think it, it's something along the lines of like I would have given them more horses or something like that. Like they they didn't know they needed like an, an automobile or or the, a faster. A faster buggy. I forgot what they're quite. There's something along the lines of like people don't know what they want and what they need until someone thinks outside the box. And you know, Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile. Like nobody did it. And then the minute he he does it, within six months, like another dozen people had done it. So it's. I think it's some someone needs to pave the way to to show that it's possible. And then that's where you start to see like exponential like light bulbs going off everywhere and, and people getting excited about the potential. Yeah, I think the quote is something along the lines, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have told me they wanted faster horses. Exactly, yeah. And I, I have to say, I see this in a lot of the technologies I research now. There's an exposure barrier. When you first hear something crazy for the first time, you say, no. And then the more you start to hear about it, at some point, it doesn't matter that much about the data you provide. At some point, once you've been exposed to an idea enough, people tend to go, yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Yeah, of course that was always going to happen. And yeah, that certainly was the case with vertical farming. And there is a lot written about it, you know, which is it means people are getting exposed to this. So I do come across a lot of people who are like, yeah, of course, vertical farming, that makes sense. So it's uh, it's definitely changed since I first heard about it, the amount of people that sort of accept that as a good idea. But I, I really wanted to get that crystallized conclusion into the video of, you know, I can't give a full answer of this exact thing is going to be viable on this exact day. But hopefully the viewers now got the tools to say, this is a reasonable model for how it's going to unfold. And here's a reasonable conclusion beyond, well, you know, let's see how it works. Let's see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> what was the response to the series when it, when it first came out? Well, so I remember you saying, what was the timeline? So I took, spent six months on research and I spent another six months making the rest of the videos. So it took me a year to, to launch the video. And because I, I had to learn a lot about video editing, you know, I do cringe a bit about my video quality, but I'm still quite happy with how that one turned out. But I had to learn all that video editing from scratch. So that was another big thing. And then when I launched it, it's like, well, I've spent so much, I've spent a year on this and very few people watched it. That's the reality. And I was well aware that that was likely to happen. I thought, it's a shame I've put so much time into this and so few people have watched it. You know, the people that do were like, oh, this is really cool. This channel's going to grow a lot. And I was thinking, I hope so. <laughs> but it was 
steady, steady growth for about a year. And then the YouTube algorithm back in November just went, yeah, people really like this. So we're just going to, you know, push this out to loads of people. <laughs> and I had a year's worth of views in about four days. Wow. You know, it just, it just exploded. It was 8,000 views at the start of November. I think it's got about 140,000 views now. This past November. Yeah, this yeah, just just a month and a half ago, it was like eight thousand views, and then it just it just really exploded, and it's a good feeling now. I I sort of accepted that it was not going to take off, and I was like, well, it's okay. You know, people have seen it, and some people have learned, and some people had value. You know, I ha I've had people who are doing like you know masters in horticulture saying, oh, you know, really. Re your series was a real, really great help in my essay on this, and and it took me a while to get the sources out, and that's still not complete. But you know, I, I've been emailing people data and sources and calculations and stuff. But you know, it's I'd say it's really blown up the last month or so. So that's been quite exciting. And uh, you've got a couple of other series on there on uh, flying cars and and innovation. So how do you how do you decide which topics you want to cover and or what else do you have planned for um for the channel yeah so that's a that's an interesting one there's there's some things that i have to answer so there's some things there's questions i have and i have to answer it and i do the research and i'm like right i'm turning this into a video that was a thing about the innovation video is i wanted to really crystallize my own thoughts on how innovation works and that's supposed to be a series, but I'm so slow at making the videos because because I spend ages researching and learning how to put more and more into it. The flying car one, it was supposed to be just a, the one-off video because I, I'd seen some progress in EVTOLs, which is electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. And I was curious myself, you know, is this is this a pipe dream? Is this an overhyped technology? Same, similar principle to vertical farming. And I had to sort of get to the bottom of it. And I, I've done the research. I've got multiple scripts on that. And while I'm not happy with what I did with that series, you know, there is actually some really interesting and similar comparisons you can make. And it's another one where it just it just seems kind of ridiculous and infeasible. Um, but when you crunch the numbers, I can't really find any big barrier. The, you know, the only barrier I can see is really regulation and people's perception. But again, this is similar to the vertical farm where you've got to think about it as global and distributed. You know, if the US says, no, we're not going to touch this technology, but, you know, Dubai's already, they're already trialing it. And if it's successful there, some other city is going to say, yeah, we'll do it too. And there's actually a few. And as long as they, they're successful and you can look to another country that's doing something and it's not been a disaster, suddenly everyone can go, Oh yeah, let's let's adopt it now that we've seen it. That's another one I I I was probably even more skeptical of to be honest, but having looked into it, it's looking uh, more and more plausible. Uh, one more thing you said about uh, how do I choose them? Uh, it is a bit of a mix. Some stuff I have to know the answer to, and some stuff I've got a lot of requests for. Can you do it on this? So I've had a lot of requests for lab-grown meat sort of cultured meat or synthetic meat many names a bit like vertical farming you got to be specific about what you're talking about but yeah um yeah plant plant-based meat versus uh, lab-based 
grown in the lab versus yeah there's a, there's a there, even there there's a couple of different ways you can you can slice that yeah supplementation you know some you know 20 percent insects in your meat you know that kind of thing so uh that's that's something that um is going to be a series and the other one which i was going to do and is requested like crazy is energy the future of energy and i feel like that's a good one because i talked about in the, the vertical farming series it's, it has a big impact on vertical farming it has a big impact on all sorts of things so what's what's the future what's the current state so kind of a similar idea what's the current state of energy what are the problems what what do we need to solve what's the future look like for solar what does it look like for nuclear fission maybe thorium people talk about that a lot fusion various types and again i'm not really trying to say that technology x is going to be a big thing if if it if i find that it's not viable i'll say that but that's the next big series so i've got a video coming out in the next few weeks tied to innovation but the series i really want to get started is energy and i want to get a few videos out on that that in 2020 and some stuff on lab grown meat that would be quite interesting yeah there's such a connection between the efficiencies in energy and the and the potential for vertical farming like you said they do go hand in hand when you do do that energy series maybe you can save one of the chapters for free energy which is <laughs> i've been fascinated always by the the work of nikola tesla so or that might have to be its own series but you know if if you you crack that puzzle and you and you solve that one then then you really can you know, with abundant energy it, it the, there really is no limits then on what's what we're capable of especially with something like vertical farming yeah i mean you know if you can get to the energy where it's to the point where it's so it's so abundant it's almost free like say for example you know high q factor nuclear fusion it changes it becomes very hard to predict and you know you were talking about moore's law and stuff like that one of the things that makes it so complicated is if you look at technology in one technology in isolation, then you can sort of predict it. But what? How does the change in energy affect other industries? How does that affect, say, computing? What knock-on effect might that have on, say, AI? And what effect will computing have on, say, genomics and biology? And that could feed back into vertical farming. You see, you know. The, as you'll have heard from Peter Diamandis about, you know, the cost of genome sequencing has just, you know, plummeted. The first one was, I forget the figure off the top of my head, something like 150 million. And now it's it's below uh, $100. I, a thousand, I think, that was, yeah, a thousand or a hundred dollars, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was below a thousand. I think it's getting towards a hundred. I, I have to have to catch up on that. But, you know, how does that affect vertical farming? You know, um, some... Some uh, vertical farms use GMOs, some don't. Some are certified organic. You know, there's a whole host. There's so many ways that there's so many different types. Actually, that's that's something I feel I didn't do a great job of getting across so well in my series. Is you know, I said there's four types of vertical farm, which in itself is a simplification. There's so many ways to do it. So it'll be interesting, you know, as you're speaking to your many guests on this podcast. They'll all have a slightly different, you know, perspective of what the optimal type of farm is, what the best market is. It's a, it's a very, very interesting area. There's a lot of, a lot of nuance, a lot of different types. You continue to follow what's happening in the industry now that you've, uh, you've. It's been probably a, a, a bit of time since the, the series was published. 
Yes, yes, I do. Uh, so I have this general approach to technology where I, you know, I read lots of sources. In some cases, it's it's news articles. In some cases, it's journals and stuff. And because I've spent so much time, you know, researching vertical farming, I naturally am drawn to any article or news stories about that. If you were to ask what the current state is now, I don't, I don't feel I could answer that as confidently as I could have when I was, you know, I'd done six months of research. There's some stuff I, I, I will have missed. And that's why I want to do that follow-up video. You know, on, I want to do the sort of vertical farming in 2020 or 2021. And just I just want to keep updating that. And actually, you, you mentioned something before about open sourcing, which I never got back to. My initial idea for the channel, I was doing a lot of research but what I really wanted to do is I wanted to take the, you know, the evangelists of a technology and the critics and uh, pit them together against each other, so to speak. Not in a battle, just if I come up with a figure, let's say, you know, I'm saying solar's going to have this efficiency and a critic might say, well, no, actually, I found this paper that says this. And then, you know, the person that supports it said, well, actually, I found this paper that says this. And, and I, what I wanted to do at some point is have this open source research where, you know, I could say I'm working on the future of energy and people, whatever they believe, whether they think it's going to be now, never, whatever, they can input their information and knowledge into that. And that can inform the models. And I think that's a very, a very powerful model. It's something I'd still oversee. I'd like to check the sources and make sure that they're, they're valid. But I think that kind of crowd source knowledge is, you know, it's much better than I could do. I spent a lot of time on research, but I, I could still pick plenty of holes in my own videos. And the more people that sort of brought together that and synthesized that information, the more powerful it could be. So in that in that case, I would, I would be, I guess you could say a guide. I'd ask certain questions. I'd put in my model for, for what I think it is and some of my research and have people just tear it apart, better, worse, whatever. That I think that's a would be a really, really interesting way to model future technologies. It would be an incredible, incredible resource to be able to have that much knowledge put to the task of modeling all sorts of future technologies. And that could be useful for all sorts of industries. It lends itself to, uh, I believe Tesla opened up or released the, the patents or some patents that he's for, for Tesla are available in the public domain. Obviously, it, it sounds a lot like what was done with Wikipedia. And even Diamandis talks about it with the XPRIZE, right? The minute they made it as something as available with a, a big enough lure, immediately, like, there's so many great minds that are just willing to work on this type of work. And I think this idea of, and you see it with the open source uh, software uh, movement as well. So, so it sounds like, uh, you know, that, you know, what you talked about is sort of a mix of a little bit of a mix of all those things, uh, sort of the rising tide lifts all boats aspect, where if we all put our minds to these challenges, and we learn from each other, and, oh, I, I that bit of research is now going to clarify a point that I was struggling with. And now it'll help me, you know, figure out how to make this thing more efficient. I think that's fascinating. And I think creating a platform for that is is something that's really interesting and exciting. Yeah, I'm very excited for for where that sort of that model goes forward because there are websites where you can where people predict 
various outcomes, whether it's political or technological. And again, people weigh on either side and you can see their arguments. And again, it's supposed to be a kind of gravitates towards the truth. I think the more of that, the better. Uh, you know, one of the things that's quite frustrating is I come across an article or I'd come across some information and you say a journal paper and it would have the information inside it, but I can't access it. It's behind a paywall. Maybe I need certain subscriptions and hopefully that kind of model is getting outdated to the point where it's essentially people who are interested in the stuff. They read about it for fun. You know, they can add their insight and they can you know they've read this that and the other and they can just bring that to well the table. this has been a, a fascinating conversation and i'm happy we've had it i want to applaud you on all the work you've done i think to your point you know you, you see some of these research and market papers they're charging five thousand dollars for and i think they probably don't even come close to what you've been able to do in this you in this uh video series on youtube and I definitely encourage listener to check it out. We'll have links to the series in the show notes. And so I just want to thank you for uh, taking the time to come on in the early days of the Vertical Farming Podcast to reminisce about something that probably wasn't top of mind for you since you had just had it done and, and <laughs> probably weren't even aware of that you were going to be speaking further on this topic. So I appreciate you taking the time, Stephen. Uh, not a problem at all. Uh, thanks. Thanks very much for having me. It's been an interesting if conversation. If you wanted to learn more about the series or there's a way to engage with you, are there any other sites you want to share? Uh, currently, I have the YouTube channel. There are, I, do have like, um, I do have like a Reddit and a Discord, but I'm not actively using those. It's something I want to use in the future for the reasons I mentioned just before. But for now, I, I would say if you want to speak to me, you can reach me through my email that's on my youtube channel that's at exacognition at gmail.com and we'll have links to the youtube channel and to the email and we'll put those in the show notes as well and hopefully we'll increase the visits to the <laughs> to the website as a result so thanks again for your time Stephen. no problem at all great speaking to you thanks for listening that was a really insightful conversation with Stephen, and i really want to thank him because he really helped me validate the importance of understanding and speaking to the major players in this industry. And it's why I've been active in searching out who are the best folks to be speaking to. So if there's anyone that comes to mind as you listen to these early episodes, please, by all means, send me an email, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We're really making a concerted effort to collect as many ratings and reviews as they indicate to new listeners the popularity of the podcast. And since we are in early days, those would help a lot. Really excited for next week's episode. It's with Henry Gordon Smith of Agritecture. Those familiar with the vertical farming space will know Henry's name really well, and we have a very insightful conversation about some of the work that Agritecture has done, their upcoming projects, their insights into the industry, their podcast, and all things ag tech, and Henry is a great storyteller. So please stay tuned for that, episode four. We appreciate the buzz being generated with these early episodes. And if you could share this with at least one person in the vertical farming world, that would be greatly appreciated. Have a fantastic day. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free consultation at fullcast.co forward slash chat one five. 
Special thanks to our episode sponsor, Intelligent Growth Solutions. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, you can support the show by leaving a rating at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, and you'll be given instructions for how to leave a review there. Thanks for listening. To hear all past episodes and read the episode summaries, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.